Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Read Smart. I'm your host, Razia Iqbal. And this week, I'm delighted to be talking to Margaret Macmillan, historian and author at the University of Oxford. In 2002, her book, Peacemakers, Six Months That Changed the World, subsequently renamed Paris 1919, Six Months That Changed the World, won the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. The book explored the peace process that ended the First World War, culminating in the Treaty of Versailles. More recently, her book has been chosen for the shortlist of the Winner of Winners Award, which will go to the best of the previous winners of the prize. The shortlist has been chosen by a panel of judges chaired by Jason Cowley, and featuring Shahida Bari, Sarah Churchwell, and Francis Wilson. Margaret, thank you so much for being with me. It's a pleasure. Let's start with getting you to set out what you set out to do with this book, because in many ways you were challenging the prevailing ideas about the Treaty of Versailles. I didn't mean to challenge any ideas. I, I just simply became fascinated with the Paris Peace Conference that took place at the end of the First World War, partly because so many things were discussed there that still matter in our world and still mattered in, in, in the beginning of the 21st century. And I just became obsessed with it, I suppose, and I started to read about it. And I thought, you know, there must be a good book on it somewhere. And I found there was no single book on the whole conference. And I thought, well, someone should write it. And then I thought, maybe I'll try, which was very, you know, slightly mad, I think, when I think back. I mean, because I wasn't terribly well known. I, I, I just kept working on it. And I ended up um, sort of following the evidence. And I, I decided that perhaps what happened in Paris wasn't as bad as everyone thought and did not lead directly to the Second World War. Indeed, you presented it very much as a, as a time of hope. And, and also, given that Europe was still roiling. We had the Russian Revolution fighting in Eastern Europe and, and the Middle East and so on. It, it wasn't as if the, the wars were over and done with. Explain to us how different what was happening in 1919 in, in Paris to the last time that really world powers had got together to, to, to decide on, on the end of the Napoleonic Wars in, in 1815. What was really different, I think, was that by 1815, people in Europe were ready for peace. Um, the French Revolution of 1789 had set off a whole series of explosions, in a way, all over Europe. And then there had been wars that went on until the Battle of Waterloo in, in 1815. And I think the revolutionary fires had burnt down. Um, you know, People had suffered enormously. I think societies had been turned upside down. And, I think there was a sense that the time had really come to make peace and try and restore some, restore some sort of stability. Whereas in 1919, it is true the war was over, but the big war was over, but the small wars went on and they were going to go on in the center of Europe, as, as you mentioned, in the Middle East and, and Afghanistan until the middle of the 1920s. And the revolutionary fervors that had been set off by the Russian Revolution of 1917 continued to send shockwaves around the world. And so the challenges, I think, before those making peace in 1919 were much greater than the challenges before those who were doing the same thing in 1815. And, and it was the most extraordinary endeavor in Paris. Just outline for us how much was involved in 
setting this up, the numbers of people involved, the fact that Paris was transformed by this gathering. It was a huge number of people. And, and what is so fascinating, I think, among other things about it, is that some of the most important people of the world, the President of the United States, the Prime Minister of Britain, the Prime Minister of France, all came to Paris and stayed there for six months. And it's hard, I can't imagine that ever happening again. I mean, when, when heads of important countries meet today, they meet for, what, two and a half days at most. The idea that there you had all these people, plus a whole host of petitioners, because this was the center of power in the world. So if you wanted something done, if you were women who wanted votes, if you were Africans who wanted freedom, if you were black Americans who, who wanted civil rights, you came to Paris because that's where the center of power in the world was for six months. And then there were all the sort of the writers, the people, Proust was there, um, Augustus John was painting it. I mean, it just was this extraordinary conglomeration of people and all the issues that were being discussed, I found absolutely fascinating. There were people who wrote kind of first-hand accounts of it, most notably Harold Nicholson and John Maynard Keynes. I mean, to, to, to what extent were you reading those accounts and thinking, I can bring something completely different to this? Well, when you read diaries and, and letters, which of course are, are absolutely fascinating and they give you the, the sense of the times, you have to balance them with what you know, what was going on elsewhere, what was happening elsewhere, who else had views on things. Um, Harold Nicholson's diaries are absolutely fascinating, but they were a certain amount of reconstruction. I mean, his, his diaries were like an engagement diary, very brief notes, met so-and-so, met so-and-so, and he wrote them up later. And so you have to take that into account. And so what I was trying to do was balance what people were saying at the time, and they had a very particular view of a very particular section, and what we know was happening elsewhere, and, and how we've begun to think about it later. It's, that's always the process in history. You, you go to the records, and then you try and evaluate them. It, it was certainly true that there were leaders in Paris who acknowledged that this was going to be really difficult. I mean, Clemenceau said making peace is harder than waging war. And, and in 1919, what they had to deal with, which wasn't present, in 1815 was public opinion. To what extent did that drive the way in which the leaders were thinking about what they might be able to achieve? I think you've picked on one of the most important differences. Um, people in 1815, I mean, you, you had Metternich, the Chancellor of the Austrian Empire, um, Castlereagh, the British Foreign Minister, the Tsar of Russia. They didn't have to worry much about public opinion. You know, there wasn't really any public pressure on them. They, they could make up their own minds and, and what was decided was decided. But in Paris, of course, you had this huge burden of expectations. Woodrow Wilson, the American president, said, I worry sometimes about the burden of expectations that is out there. I mean, everyone thinks we can solve everything. And there were huge press interests. I think there was something like 700 journalists covering the Paris Peace Conference. And so the leaders there had to take account of what was happening at home. Lloyd George, the British prime minister, had to think of Parliament had to think of the letters his office receiving, had to think about the press back in the UK and back in Britain. Woodrow Wilson had to worry about Congress, public opinion, and all of this made a huge difference. And because the war had been so dreadful and so costly, people thought that it should be producing a better world, should be solving all sorts of problems. And you had all these countries that were beginning, struggling to emerge out of the wreckage of empires like Austria-Hungary or the German Empire or the Russian Empire. And they were struggling to become independent. And, and this was something else the people in Paris had to try and deal with. And, and the, 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 what the, the visions of the different leaders who were, were present were, were also uh, contradictory. I mean, outline for us what, you know, Woodrow Wilson's vision, which was ambitious and 
huge compared with what the other leaders who were present wanted, because it was really quite different and, and also contradictory in some ways. Well, I think what often happens when a war ends, I mean, the, the, the fact of the war, particularly if it's a major war, will hold a, a coalition together or hold the winning, winning side together and the losing side will probably disintegrate. But once the war is over, inevitably, I think differences and alliances begin to come out and national interests begin to reassert themselves. And so what Clemenceau and many of the French wanted was security. And Clemenceau had been there in 1870 when the German Confederation had invaded France. He had been there in 1914 when Germany invaded France again. And what he and a lot of French people wanted, and it's understandable, was security against a resurgent Germany. What the British wanted was destruction of the German fleet because that had challenged their control of the seas. And they wanted as much as possible to get hold of German colonies. So you get all these different national interests coming out. And then you have Woodrow Wilson, the American president, who said very clearly, we don't want anything for ourselves. But actually, there were a lot of Americans who thought we can compete more now um, as a result of the war with the British and the French in, in, in the markets around the world. What Woodrow Wilson wanted was a world order which would try and get rid of war. And his mechanism for doing this was, was the League of Nations, a forerunner of the United Nations. And he really hoped that it would get the nations of the world to work together and protect each, protect each other against aggression. Um, the problem from Clemenceau's point of view was that it wasn't going to have an army. And as he said, I like the League of Nations idea, but I don't believe in it. And, and, and also, I mean, I suppose the other really big idea was the idea of self-determination, which came very much from Wilson. The, the idea of self-determination, it had been around. I mean, a lot of Wilson's ideas were things that had been around in the 19th and the early 20th century. The idea of a League of Nations, the idea of compulsory binding arbitration among nations, all of that had actually been around. And he brought those ideas together in a very persuasive way. And the notion of self-determination, he seemed, he's always a bit fuzzy about it, but he seems to have thought that people should have the right to choose their own governments. But I don't think he meant, and, and he, I think, began to realize this later, that every single group who define themselves as a separate people should necessarily have an independent country. But that's how people took it. And self-determination became, for a lot of self-defined nations, something that they aimed for. And they didn't feel it would really be complete until they had their own territory and they were independent. And so you've got, in the center of Europe, all these nations appearing and demanding territory. The trouble was that the population in the center of Europe was so mixed and the history was so complicated that different peoples could claim the same bits of territory. And that left all sorts of reasons for hostility and, and mutual suspicion in the interwar years. And, and the issue of reparations and being informed by retribution, just, just explain the different parties and what they thought of that. Well, reparations were something that had happened in wars before, or they called them sometimes indemnities. Um, when you lost a war, you usually had to pay up, and that was understood. But of course, by the 20th century, we're in a new world. And the idea that a whole people should be punished for something their leaders have done was, was now being challenged. But from the point of view of the French, a lot of the war in the West had been on their soil. It hadn't been on German soil. And so French territory in the north of France was devastated. I and mean, we've all seen the pictures of the battlefronts. Um, the infrastructure was ruined. The mines were flooded. It was going to take decades to, to repair the damage done to France. And so from the French point of view, why should they pay for it when they hadn't started the war, when Germany had invaded them? And they looked over the border, and, and Germany certainly had suffered in the war, but its infrastructure was pretty much intact because it hadn't been bombed as it was going to be bombed in the Second World War. And from the British point of view, they had invested a huge amount of money. And of course, everyone had lost huge numbers of lives. 
And so there was this feeling that someone should pay. Now, in retrospect, I think we can say that was probably wrong, that it would have been much better, and this is what John Maynard Keynes organized, to get Germany going again, because it had been the economic sort of hub of Europe and the economic powerhouse, and that the whole of Europe would benefit once the German economy started going again and Germany started trading and investing and, and being a market. But it was very hard with public opinion to say, look, the war has been terrible, to say to the French and the British and, and other nations, the Belgians, who'd also suffered hugely, sorry, but you know we're going to say bygones are bygones. We're not going to try and get anything out of Germany. I think politically it was very, very difficult. You quite clearly suggest that neither Hitler nor the Second World War should be blamed on the, the Treaty of Versailles. J just set out what, what you meant by presenting that case. I think briefly what I meant was um, the Treaty of Versailles was resented deeply in Germany. That was, it, was the German, it was Germany's treaty. And what tended to happen was everything that went wrong in Germany was blamed on it. Um, and so a British journalist who, who was traveling through Germany in, in the 1920s stayed briefly as, as a lodger with two old sisters. And the two old sisters said, you know, before the war, we had a middle-class standard of living. We could send our laundry out to be washed twice a week. Now we can only send it once a month. It's all the fault of the Treaty of Versailles. And so it became a sort of shorthand for everything that was wrong. Um, you know, there were other reasons for Germany's economic troubles, partly German government policies. So I think what I was trying to say was that the Treaty of Versailles provided some of the, the, the animosity that Germany felt towards the winning side, certainly contributed. I think the First World War made possible the Second World War, but an awful lot happened in those 20 years between 1919 and 1939, and you can't blame everything on what happened in 1919. I think I was trying to say, perhaps not very well, that you know we need to look at what happened in the 1920s and the 1930s without blaming everything on a decision that was made in 1919. You do also present what happened in 1919 as, as lessons that we can learn even, even a century on, because you, you've written about this in, in the most lucid ways. Just explain to us what lessons you think we can learn in the 21st century from what happened in 1919. Well, one lesson may be quite a harsh lesson, um, and that is that if you're going to defeat an enemy, they have to realize they've been defeated. Um, and that sounds really hard, but if you look at the end of the Second World War, there was no question for either Germany or Japan that they had been defeated because they were occupied. And curiously enough, I mean, you, you will notice, we don't get Germans or Japanese saying we were treated terribly unfairly in 1945 and then the years immediately afterwards. Something changed. And I think what changed is the fact of defeat was brought home. Now, that sounds really harsh, and, and it is. I mean, it, it means that the civilian population suffer a lot. Um, but it is, I think, you know, it, it does seem to me to indicate that the fact that Germans, by and large, didn't recognize they'd been defeated in 1919 gave brows for all those, like the far-right parties, the Nazis included, who said we'd been treated terribly unfairly. Um, I think there's that. I think there's also, and a, a more positive lesson, is you have to be generous to those who are defeated. Um, you know, if you try and, and extract reparations, you're probably going to cause resentments. You're probably not going to get that much. And in the end, the Allies never got more than a fraction of what they tried to get out of Germany. I mean, the Germans never paid the full reparation bill, only paid a fraction of it. And generosity is, is important, but it's very hard politically. And I think what really made the difference also at the end of the Second World War is that the Americans who initially planned to withdraw from Europe after 1945 were so spooked by the moves of the Soviet Union into the center of Europe and so fearful of what might happen if the Soviet Union wasn't checked 
that they were prepared to pay for the Marshall Plan, which was enormously important in getting European economies going again and preventing the sort of um, social uh, collapse that had happened in, in parts of Europe after the end of the First World War. And of course, these are the sorts of things that we think about still today, given the invasion of, um, of Ukraine by Russia. I think collectively we would be very foolish. When the war finally ends, which it will, we don't know how it will end. I mean, there are all sorts of possible ways that it might end. I think we should be thinking in terms of how do we eventually, collectively, as the West, reintegrate Russia into the community of nations. I mean, it's going to be very, very difficult, but it would be, I think, a disaster if Russia were to be left for a generation or more as a deeply embittered um, pariah country. It would not lead to peace. But that is going to be something that we're going to have to try and, and think about. But I, I think what is also going to be absolutely essential is that there should be a massive reconstruction campaign and, and funds donated and, and activities to rebuild, rebuild Ukraine. I mean, it has suffered losses, of course, of people, but it's also suffered huge losses in its infrastructure. And if Ukraine is not reconstituted, not prepared, um, it will, of course, be dreadful for Ukraine, but it's going to be dreadful for the rest of Europe because Ukraine is a very important and um, potentially very rich country as part of Europe. Let's go back to to your book in 1919. I mean, among the the, the really wonderfully enjoyable uh, bits of your book are, are the the characterizations of of the leaders involved, but not just the leaders. So I, I want to focus a little bit on on Wilson because he he doesn't doesn't come out well from your your drawing of him i mean in in many ways very realistic but but tell us a little bit about your research the research that was involved in painting this portrait of this man who was both ambitious and petulant and and so many things in between it's always to me one of the interesting parts about writing history is you begin to get a sense of the characters and and you do it you just read a lot um and i've read enormously and there's been a huge, a huge edition of, of Wilson's papers, um, many, many volumes, which I, I spent a great deal of time on, which also includes diaries and letters that were written about him and comments on him. Um, and so the more I read, the more I began to build up a picture. And, and it's almost like meeting a person. You, you have to decide whether you like them or not. And the more you learn about them, you may decide you don't like some of their characteristics or you really appreciate some of the things that they, they do and some of their values. And I felt that with Wilson. I mean, I found him a very puzzling character in a way because I liked his ideas. I mean, I think his ideas of trying to build a world organization that will try and bring peace, try and bring mutual prosperity, try and deal with issues that we all need to deal with around the world. I mean, League of Nations was really, I think, now seen as a failure. But when you look at what it did, it helped to create international health organizations. It helped to try and um, have movements against slavery. For example, it helped to try and improve labor standards around the world. I mean, all these things make the world a better place. And I think Wilson was too much to be commended for that. I mean, I liked his ideas very much. But as a personality, he was complicated. I guess we all are. But, you know, he, he was um, expressed the highest values, but he could be quite vindictive. If you disagreed with him, he often just cut you off. That was it. And he assumed there was something wrong with you. Um, he wasn't good at taking debates. Um, he became, I think, more and more rigid as, as he got older, more and more sure that he was right and more inclined to believe that those who disagreed with him weren't. But, you know, as I say, he's like human beings, so all of us. I mean, we're all a mix of good and bad, and he, he was, I think, 
and and what what then are we to make of his engagement with Lloyd George and and George Clemenceau? Because you know they were they were just kind of closeted together for a very long time. They all had to get used to each other's ways of 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 being the push and pull of 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 what was required at that time you and they're three very different people i mean they're thrown together because of who they are and because of the circumstances but they had to get on um i mean they they found it difficult at first i mean clemenceau once said i sometimes feel i'm sitting between jesus christ meaning woodrow wilson and napoleon meaning lloyd george (laughs) but you know clemenceau could be very funny but they got on and what's really interesting i mean they're also quite good records. I mean, they, they started out having quite big meetings, and then Wilson said, look, we're not getting anywhere. And they set up something called the Council of Four, which was the three of them, plus the Italian prime minister, who was there more as a courtesy because Italy wasn't as great a power as the others. So they would meet, um, sometimes with just a secretary, and discuss the issues that they were they were grappling with. And there's a very full record of their discussions because the secretary, who the, sorry, the interpreter, who wasn't meant to make notes, went home every evening and dictated what had happened in the day. And then there's the Italian um, note taker who was there to translate from, from, interpret from Italian, who picked up all the gossip. I mean, the the, the French note taker was sort of concentrated on the issues. The Italian also noted down the casual conversations they had. And so you get this sense of these three people with huge pressures on them, trying to settle, not just the fate of Europe, but trying to settle an awful lot of the world. They develop a sort of fellow feeling. And there's one moment where the Italian reports, they start talking about their dreams. Um, what do they dream at night? What, what do they hate? Um, what are they afraid of? You know, so you, you get this sense that although they're very different, they share something which no other people in the world share, and that is a sort of fellow feeling. But there was also a really big difference in terms of um, how they viewed the world. I mean, Wilson had this idealism that... that in fact, perhaps was not um, shared by by either Lloyd George or, or Clemenceau, given that they what they knew needed to happen was a, a huge amount of horse trade. I think that's right. I mean, I think but what, what Wilson hoped, um, and unfortunately he was wrong, but he hoped once the league was up and running, things that hadn't been dealt with well at the Paris Peace Conference or things that needed to be amended would be amended there. And, and of course, that didn't really happen very much. But I think he had great hopes in it. And Lloyd George and Clemenceau were much more skeptical. But I think it's it's really important that their peoples, a lot of the people in France and certainly a lot of the people in Britain, placed a lot of faith in Wilson, liked his ideas. Um, you know, in Britain between the wars, there was going to be a, an organization to support the League of Nations, which had millions of members. I mean, it was really popular in countries like Britain, very popular in my own country, Canada. And so Clemenceau and Lloyd George, whatever reservations they had, could not say that they thought the whole League of Nations idea was a bad one. And so they, they, they did contribute to drawing up what Wilson called the covenants of the, the founding document of the League of Nations. And they did become members. Of course, ironically, the United States didn't. I wonder also about you being drawn to more minor characters. Who were who your favorite people that you alighted on in, in, in the book that were not the kind of big players? Well, Harold Nicholson, of course, because he, you know, the, he was minor, not not that important um, British British foreign 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 office official there in Paris, but he was enormously lucid. He wrote beautifully. He also was interested in the characters, um, and so I liked that. I was interested too in some of the people who came from the the far off parts of the world. 
you know, the young Japanese um, who was sent, who was later on going to be Japan's prime minister as Japan moved towards the Second World War, or the Chinese delegation, um, one of whom later became a monk in Belgium of all places. You know, these I found absolutely fascinating because it really was an extraordinarily international gathering. And then there was, you know, pe there were people like Gertrude Bell, um, the English woman who, who really helped to create the modern stage of Iraq. There was Lawrence of Arabia. You know, when you start listing them, I mean, it just was the most extraordinary collection. Queen Marie of Romania as well. Oh, Queen Marie of Romania was a piece of work, I must say. Uh, you know, she was, um, she was, uh, goodness knows how many, you know, love affairs she had. She she was very sort of pretty and, and um, married to a very dull king in, in Romania and I think um, made a life for herself. But she brought her daughters to Paris, um, partly I think because she was hoping to marry them off. And because she cared a great deal about her own appearance, um, she hadn't, poor thing, been able to get to the Paris couturiers because of the war. And so she came on a shopping trip. Um, but the shopping trip not only included clothes for herself and her daughters, it also included a great big piece of Hungary. Um, so she was, she was quite something. I mean, she, she was shameless in her own way, but ra rather admirable. It, 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 it's so clear in reading this book that you, you enjoyed writing it. I mean, is, is, that, is that right? Or did you feel that there were moments of, of real struggle with it? Well, there are always, always moments of struggle with books. Usually at the beginning when you think, why did I think I could do this? <laughs> you know, am I nuts? And I just kept going because I was so fascinated. And I didn't have a publisher until I'd written I probably more than about half of it or maybe the whole thing. Um, so, you know, I kept going really just because I was fascinated. I was doing it for myself as much as anything else. And then winning winning the prize when you did, what did what did that mean for for you? Given that you didn't even have a publisher when you'd got halfway through, I mean, how how significant was it for you? It was. I mean, it's sort of a cliche, but it really did change things. Um, you know, I never again had to go to a publisher and say, "Would you be interested in this idea I had?" I mean, the morning after I, I won the prize, my my publisher John Murray. Um, said, you know, we're going to have a little party in the office. And what are you thinking of writing next? Um, and that had never happened to me before. Um, so that was, that. it, it was extraordinary. And, and I didn't expect, I, you know, I just thought it'd be nice if my book came out and, and maybe someone noticed it in a short review somewhere. I didn't expect it um, at all to, to sort of um, become widely read. Um, and it did make a difference. I mean, people started to ask my opinion. Um, that, but, you know, I, I hadn't been known before. I mean, I was a Canadian academic. Um, I'd written one book before. Um, so, you know, not many people knew my work. Why would they? Um, there was, when I won the prize, I think, I wish I'd cut it out, but there was a headline in one of the UK papers, I think one of, one of possibly the Daily Mail, um, which said, little known Canadian Pips Jenkins, um, because Roy Jenkins was also in for it. Treasure that headline. That is just so funny. I mean, what would you what would you say you learned as a historian from having written this? Given that you say you wrote it for yourself in the first instance, I think what I've learned is is however complicated the subject, you have to tell a story. Um, you know, if you want people to be interested, you want them to read it. Um, you have to make them understand why they want to know more. And I think I was very lucky. I taught for years um, at a downtown university in Toronto where I learned to tell the story. And I think that helped my writing. Um, you know, you can do a, a nice essay in a book on, you know, the thoughts of Karl Marx or Woodrow Wilson or whatever, but people aren't going to want to read it unless you tell them why it mattered. 
you know, why does it matter that Woodrow Wilson has these ideas about making the world a better place? Because the world is a pretty awful place and you have to give examples of it. So I think I learned through writing it um, and also through teaching that you have to tell the story. You have to make people understand why what you're telling them matters. And now being shortlisted for the winner of winners, that, that must feel pretty nice. Well, it is very nice. I mean, I, 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 I got an email um, I think from John Murray saying that I'd been listed. And I thought, no, I, I thought at first, you know, that they've, they've made a mistake here. I mean, been that, you know, it's happened. And then I sort of looked at it and realized, and, and then I looked at the other books, which are extraordinary. I mean, it is really something to be in, in this collection of, of writers. I mean, I've, I've read several of them. I've read Wade Davis's book, um, Into the Silence, and I've read a couple of others. And, and they, you know, they're just terrific. They really are. And as is yours, Margaret McWillan, thank you so much for making time to speak to us. And um, very best of luck with the winner of Winners um, Award. We would also like to thank the Blavatnik Family Foundation for its generous support of this podcast. And of course, to you for listening. The winner of Winners Award is going to be announced on the 27th of April at an event held at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh. In the meantime, do join me again to hear me speak with the last of the shortlisted authors, Patrick Radden Keefe, about the impact of his book, Empire of Pain, The Secret History of the Sackler Dynasty. My thanks once again to Margaret Macmillan. Until the next time, bye-bye. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.